Section 34 of the Underground Railroad, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 4, by William Still. Section 34. Case of Euphemia Williams, Part 3. The court met again at a quarter to three o'clock. Mr. McMurtry asked that the witnesses for the defense be excluded from the courtroom, except the one upon the stand. This was objected to by Mr. Brown, as the witnesses for the prosecution had not been required so to do. But he afterwards withdrew his objections, and notified Mr. McMurtry that he would require any witnesses he might have in addition should retire also as he would object to any of them being heard if they remained. THE DEFENSE Mr. Pierce opened the case by saying that the testimony for the defense would be clear and conclusive, that the witnesses for the prosecution are mistaken in the identity of the alleged fugitive, that at the time they allege her to have been in Maryland, on the plantation of Dr. Purnell, she was in Chester County, and in the year Lafayette visited this country, she was in this city. He would confine the testimony exclusively to these two counties, and show that she is not the alleged slave. Henry C. Cornish, sworn. I live in this city, and am a shoemaker. I came here in the year 1830. Before that, I lived in Chester County, East Whiteland Township, with William Latta. My father lived with Mr. Latta six or eight years. I lived there three years before that time, and was familiar with the place for more than six years before 1830. I saw the alleged fugitive some five years before 1830 at George Amos's in Uchland Township, some eight or ten miles from our house. I fixed the time from a meeting being held on the Valley Hill by a minister named Nathan D. Tierney. That must have been in 1825. I am positive it was before the beginning of the year 1828. I have not the least doubt. I joined church about that time. It was the first of my uniting with the church. It was in 1825. I joined the Methodist Episcopal Church. Before they built a church, they held meetings alternately at people's houses. I met her at Amos's house. I recollect my father going to dig the foundation of the church. I saw her there before the church was built. I knew her before she was married, and since I left there I have met her at the annual meetings of the church. I have kept up the acquaintance ever since. I knew that she had two children that were buried as long as twenty-one and twenty-two years ago. If the boy had lived, he would have been twenty-three or twenty-four years old. He was the oldest. She was not married when I first saw her in 1827. She did not appear to be anything but a girl, and was not married and she, of course, could not be in the condition of a married woman. I was not at her wedding. If I had not continued to know her, I would not now know her. She was then a small person. Age and flesh would change her a little. Her complexion has not changed. I think she worked for Mrs. Amos. A church record is now kept very correct, but when I first went into the church, colored men could not read and write. I acted as the clerk of the church. I united with the church after I first saw her. I have seen her very often since I left Chester. 
five hundred times to speak safely. I worship downtown and she up in Brown Street. To the best of my recollection, they moved over Skillkill about twelve years ago. She has lived here about nine years. She has six children, I have heard. I have seen five. The oldest is eighteen or nineteen, the youngest a sucking babe. I have visited her house since I have been here. I was not sent for by my uncle, who was employed by Joseph Smith and Company next to the Girard Bank. I was with Edward Biddle for four years, until he was elected president of the Morris Canal and Banking Company, and then I went to learn shoemaking under instructions, since which time I have been in business for myself. My father burnt limestone for Mr. Latta. He and his wife are dead. I was there a day or two ago for witnesses to testify in this case. Cross-examined. I was born in 1814, and am 37 years of age. When I first knew her, I suppose she was 15 years old. She was married about three years afterwards. Her husband's name is Macaja Williams. I heard he was in prison for stealing. Her name before marriage was Fanny Coates. I didn't know her husband before they were married. Don't know whether they came from Maryland. I never knew of Mahala Richardson before last evening in court. The difference in her appearance is a natural one that everybody is acquainted with. I mean that a little boy is not a man, and a growing girl is not a woman. Age and flesh and size make a difference. If I had not conversed with her during the twenty-one years, I would not have known her. I never changed a word with her about the case, except to say I was sorry to see her here. I knew her the moment I saw her. Her arrest could not have been in the newspapers of the morning, as she was not arrested until seven o'clock that day. I went to Chester to look for witnesses. I came to the court because I am a vigilant man, and my principle is to save any person whose liberty is in danger. I had heard that a woman was arrested. Her business is to get work wherever she can. Deborah Ann Boyer, sworn. I was thirty-three last January. I live within one mile of Westchester. I am a married woman. I have lived there since 1835. I went there with my mother. I can read. I have seen the alleged fugitive before this. I first knew her at Downingtown, when she came to my mother's house. That was before I had gone to Westchester with my mother. You can tell how long it was, for it was in 1826. My brother was born in that year. I was quite small then don't know how she came there. She was with my mother during her confinement. My brother is dead. It is written down in our testament, and I took an epitaph from it to put on the tombstone. The last time I saw it is when the fellow killed the schoolmistress. I looked because about 1830 a man killed a woman and was hung, and I wanted to see how long ago it was. I have seen her more or less ever since, until within two years. I don't remember when she went from mother, but I saw her at Mr. Latta's afterwards. I have no doubt she is the woman. She was then a slim, tall girl, larger than myself. 
She is not darker now, but heavier set every way. Sarah Gailey affirmed, I am between forty-seven and forty-eight years of age. I live in the city at this time. I was raised in Chester County in 1824 and have been here about five years. I lived in Downingtown nine or ten years. I lived a while in West Chester and lived in Chester County until about five years ago. I know the alleged fugitive. I first saw her in the neighborhood of Downingtown at a place they call Downing's Old Stage Office. She worked in the house with me. It was somewhere near 1824, just before Lafayette came about. She worked off and on day's work to wash dishes. She was a small girl then, very thin and younger than me. I met with her as near as I can tell you down in the valley at a place called the Valley Inn. I used to see her off and on at church in 1826. I visited her at Mr. Latta's after she lived at the Valley Inn. I don't know when she left that county. I know the alleged fugitive is the same person. She belonged to the same church, Ebenezer. I know the brothers Cornish, and have whipped them many a time. I lived with Latta myself, and the Cornish, who is now a minister, lived there. He lived there before I did, and so did the alleged fugitive. I was then between twenty-three and twenty-five years old. She was a strip of a girl. She was not in the family way when she came there. Cross-examined. I have not seen her since 1826, until I saw her here in the courtroom. I recognized her when I first saw her here, without anybody pointing her out, and she recognized me. I have reason to know her, because she has the same sort of a scar on her forehead that I have. We used to make fun of each other about the marks. She went by the name of Fanny Coates. I know nothing about her husband. She did not do the work of a woman in 1826. She washed dishes, scrubbed, etc. I heard her say her father and mother were dead, and that they'd lived somewhere in that neighborhood. She, at that time, made her home with a family named Amos. The judge asked to see the scar on the witness's forehead, and that on the forehead of the respondent. They were brought near the bench, and the marks inspected, which were plainly seen on both. During this time, the infant of the respondent was entrusted to another colored woman. The child, who up to this time had been quiet, raised a piteous cry and would not be pacified. The whole scene excited a great sensation. Mr. Brown then rose in reply to the plaintiff's counsel, and said, If I consulted my own views, I should not say one syllable, in answer to the arguments of the learned counsel upon the other side, and relying as I do upon the evidence, and out of respect to the convenience of your honor, I shall say very little as it is. The views of the counsel, it appears to me, are most extraordinary indeed. He seems to take it for granted that everything that is said on the part of the witnesses for the claimant is gospel, and that what is said on the part of the witnesses for the respondent is to be considered matter of suspicion. 
Now, I rate no man by his size, color, or position. But I appeal to you, in looking at the testimony that has been produced here, on the different sides of the question, and judging it by its intrinsic worth, whether there is the slightest possible comparison between the witnesses on the part of the plaintiff and those of the defendant, either in intelligence, memory, language, thought, or anything else. This is a fine commentary upon the disparagement of color. Looking at the men as they are, as you will, I say that the testimony exhibited on the part of the respondent would outweigh a whole theater of such men as are exhibited on the part of the complainant. I say nothing here about their respectability. It would have been proper for the learned counsel on the part of the plaintiff, if he thought the witnesses on the part of the respondent unworthy of belief, to have proved them so, but instead of that he attempts to bolster up men who, whether respectable or otherwise, from their inconsistency, involutions, and tergiversations in regard to this case, produce no possible effect upon the judicial mind, but that which is unfavorable to themselves. Impartial men, are they? How do they appear before you? They appear under cover from first to last, standing upon their right to resist inquiries legitimately propounded to them, burning up letters since they have arrived, calculated to shed light upon this subject, and before they come here corresponding with and deriving information from a man, an evident kidnapper, who dare not sign his name, and gets his wife to sign hers. This is the character these men exhibit here before you, clandestinely meeting together at the tavern, and that to consult in regard to the identity of a person about whom they know nothing. Can they refer to any marks by which to identify this person? Nothing at all of the kind. Do they, with the exception of the first witness examined, state even the time when she left? Have they produced the letter written by this kidnapper showing how he described her? Why, let me ask, is not the full light allowed to shine on this case? But even with the light they have shed upon it, I would have been perfectly content to have rested it, relying upon their testimony alone for a just decision. Now, what man among them professes to have seen this woman for twenty-one years? Not one. The learned gentleman attempts to sustain his case because one of our witnesses, certainly not more than one, has not seen this woman for about the same length of time. But don't you perceive that in this case they all lived in the same state, if not in the same county, they had intercourse with persons mutually acquainted with her, and three out of four of them met her for several months at the same church, and one witness, who had long been in her society and in close association with her, knew she had a mark upon her forehead, corresponding to the one she bore on her own. And by dint of all these matters, this long-continued acquaintance, only reviving the impressions received in early life, they had no doubt of the identity of the person. Was there ever a more perfect train of evidence exhibited to prove the identity of a person than on the present occasion? 
we have called witnesses on this point alone and have more than counterpoised the evidence produced upon the opposite side and we have not only made it manifest that she was a free woman but we have confirmed her charter by separate proof what does the gentleman say further do i understand him to say we have no right to determine this matter judicially now what is this all about why is it before you taking your time day after day according to this argument you have nothing to do but give the master the flesh he claims but you are to be satisfied that you have sufficient reason to believe that these claims are well founded and if you leave that matter in a state of doubt it does not require a single witness to be called on the part of the respondent to prove on the opposite side of the question but we have come in with a weight of evidence demolishing the structure he has raised restoring the woman to her original position in the estimation of the law well says the gentleman it is like the case of a fugitive from justice but it is not and if it were it would not benefit his case the case of a fugitive from justice is one in which the prisoner is remanded to the custody of the law handed over for legal purposes the case of a fugitive from labor is a case in which the individual is handed over sometimes to a merciless master and very rarely to a charitable one does the counsel mean to say that in the case of a fugitive from justice he is not bound to satisfy the judge before whom the question is heard he should prove our witnesses unworthy of belief as judge grier said upon a former occasion you can choose your own time you have full and abundant opportunities on every side to prepare against any contingency why don't they do so he is not to come here and force on a case and say i suppose you take everything for granted he is to come prepared to prove the justice of his claim before the tribunal who is to decide it that he has not done successfully and i would therefore ask your honor after the elaborate argument on the part of the plaintiff to discharge this woman for after such an abundance of testimony unbroken and incontestable as that we have exhibited here it would be a monstrous perversion of reason to suppose that anything more could be required end of section 34